It's a combination of the zoning rules that are on the books that limit the amount and density of housing that's allowed to be built, and also a crazy approval process in many of these places that projects have to go through. So it might look like you're allowed to build something, but you know, after two years or something of trying to get a permit, it might no longer be a financially viable project. And, and beyond zoning, there are other rules that are increasingly getting more attention, like building code aspects that may add unnecessary costs to new projects. And there are rules like parking requirements and historic preservation that really limit what's allowed to be built and what's financially feasible to be built. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Today we start a special mini-series on the idea of economic resiliency. Over the course of several weeks, we'll be diving into three distinct policy areas to talk about ways policymakers can help make consumers, specific markets, and the entire economy better able to withstand shocks and crises. To help guide us through the series, I'll be joined by special co-host Brian Knight. Brian is a scholar here at Mercatus, directing our work on financial regulation, and is the perfect person to both contribute policy expertise and ask some probing questions of our additional guests as we work our way through the series. Welcome aboard, Brian. And remember, I just told everyone you're here for the whole series, so you can't back out now. Yeah, but by perfect person, you mean the guy who didn't back out soon enough and is now proud. (laughs) You waited too long. I waited too long. So for today's episode, we're starting at, I think, the only place it makes sense to start a series about financial resiliency, the housing market. So often considered a primary source of the 2008 financial crisis, housing has gone from being considered the safest and most reliable market in the U.S. economy to one viewed with suspicion. Luckily, Brian and I have two extremely well-qualified folks in the studio today to help walk us through the past, present, and hopefully future of housing in the United States. And over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll hopefully land on some ideas for making housing more resilient for everyone. First, we welcome back to the show Emily Hamilton. Emily is an economist here at Mercatus specializing in state and local policy. Her research often focuses on land use regulations, looking at the local, state, and federal laws that play a significant role in shaping where and how people live. Welcome back, Emily. Thanks, Chad and Brian. It's great to be here. And to round out the group, I'm very happy to welcome Kevin Erdman. Kevin is a visiting fellow with the Mercatus Center and just released a new book entitled Shut Out that offers a bit of a contrarian take on the housing boom and bust. Glad you could join us, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. And by that, I mean, if we're going to talk about housing resiliency, we have to begin with the financial crisis that many view as having been caused by a lack of resiliency in the housing market. That's the extent of my question. So if we're talking about housing resiliency and the financial crisis, how did the two relate to each other, and where did they leave us today? I'll, I'll start by saying, sir, I think my understanding of the conventional narrative, which is that there was a excess in housing production. People went nuts. HGTV poisoned everyone's mind. And people just started building and buying homes, buying homes they couldn't afford. There were different financial products offered, variations on your more traditional mortgages aimed at getting people into homes, short-term refinancing, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually the music stopped and people didn't have chairs. They were underwater on illiquid assets and it all ended in tears. That's my understanding of at least a conventional narrative. But we have there are people who dispute that narrative and one of them is in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone looks to Kevin. Yeah, what I have found is that really it's a shortage of housing, you know, specifically in a few major metro areas, which today is obvious to anyone who's who's looking at the topic, especially it's like New York City and Boston and San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, those are sort of the key 
uh, problem areas. I call them the closed access cities because even in, in an expanding market, they don't come close to building a sustainable number of homes these days. So what happened is those cities had a severe shortage of housing. At the national level, we were building housing enough to make up for some recent uh, lackluster housing markets in the 90s. And we were sort of building the number of units per person, say, or per adult was was growing slightly, but nothing out of the ordinary. And, and the number of homes per person wasn't out of the ordinary. But what happens because we have these localized areas that don't have enough housing, the only way to build more housing is to build it in other places. So to build, have a sustainable housing market, we had to induce this mass migration event of people moving out of those cities to move into places where we could build homes. So in those places, it looked like we were building too many homes when really we were just building homes for all these migrants. And then in the cities that had a shortage, it looked like homes were too expensive because there weren't enough. So we have these combination of markets where one is too expensive and one is la is is overbuilding, or it looks like they're overbuilding. We turn that into, oh, this is an American housing market that's overbuilding and is too expensive, and that's excess, and then it's inevitably going to fall. But actually, it was it was the shortage in these core areas that led to this migration event. Just to flush that out a little bit, I guess, is what happened then that when the economy took a turn, you had folks who had been induced to move to less economically robust areas who then had invested in an expensive and illiquid asset and found themselves underwater where you know the local economy takes a downturn they lose their job they can't sell the home because no one wants to move into this er economically stressed area and so then they they foreclose or or go into default or or, or whatever meanwhile in the more closed access, but ironically, perhaps economically robust cities, you still have a housing shortage. Is, is that exactly. fair? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of all the different ways that things, we, we, the conventional wisdom sort of needs to be turned upside down is the idea that there were there were a whole bunch of, you know, mortgages going out to unqualified borrowers and all over the country, there were these households that just inevitably, you know, eventually rates were going to increase. They weren't going to be able to make the payments. And then and, – and so in 2006 and seven, you see people sort of prospectively waiting for that. You know, there were all these graphs of the coming rate resets and all that, right? Well, those rate resets never really amounted to much because by the time that happened, rates had gone back to the floor because the crisis had happened. So we had this idea. So as default started to climb, that sort of just got grandfathered in. It was sort of like the canonized idea of what happened was decided on before the facts actually happened. In reality, those early defaults were, like you say, were about this transition, about young households with high incomes buying into these, sort of paying the fee to get into these these expensive cities. Uh, and then people that had made the transition to other cities like Phoenix and, and Las Vegas, you know, where there was sort of a bubble that did happen as a result of this migration event. But uh, those early defaults were really, you know, part of that transition. But they are far outnumbered by the later defaults in like 2009, 10, and 11. And that's really when the working class uh, defaults happen. And that happens because we stopped lending to people uh, with low FICO scores or, or moderate incomes. And so what you see is is in 2012, the 
the school teacher or the custodian in, in an entry level home in Atlanta has lost 30% of their home equity, you know, because there hadn't been lending in that neighborhood for, for years at that point. And they lose their job or something and then they've lost all their equity and then they, they default and they get foreclosed on. And that's a very late process. And that, and, and there the, the, the lack of resiliency comes from shutting down lending markets, not from having too many of them. So in that scenario, it's not that the custodian or teacher can't get a loan that causes them to default. It's that the person who would be buying into the neighborhood, buying their home, right? So they lose their job. They need to downsize. They need to to increase liquidity. They have an asset. It's their house. Under normal circumstances, they would sell the house and, and go rent an apartment or something. But they can't because the credit market for the person who would buy that home has frozen up. Exactly. I mean, it's a combination of, in a lot of times, it, it's, it would be both of those factors. But you're right that it's those potential buyers that are moving the price down. So we thought that the lack of resiliency was having excess was from overbuilding and overlending. When really the the initial lack of resiliency comes from the undersupply that in these major cities makes prices become unmoored from the cost of building. The prices weren't unmoored from the rental value. Those pri- the prices in New York City and San Francisco are high because those homes are going to have high rents for years to come. So it's not unmoored from reality in terms of like rational buyers, right? It's unmoored from a, a from a connection to like a normal cost of building. Now those those cities lack resiliency because to live in those cities at all is a speculative endeavor now because yeah. To Kevin's point there, the high house prices caused by closed access cities put individuals in a very fragile situation where they're not set up to be resilient to a job loss or a broader economic downturn. In Seattle, for example, in 2005, they implemented a zoning reform called Urban Villages. And just recently, the construction has caught up to this new zoning program. And so house prices are starting to fall, which unfortunately for buyers who have bought recently based on the presumption that rents are going to continue being very high, there are a large number of of underwater homeowners. Or if you have a renter in a closed access city who's perhaps in a high risk, high reward job at a startup that they know may or may not make it, they're likely spending a huge portion of their income on on rent. So they don't have an opportunity to set themselves up to to weather this high risk situation that they've taken on. I wonder if I can go back to basics, because I think we've, we've hit on a, an, an issue in a couple of different ways that I, I think our listeners might be wondering, well, now, okay, I understand that in cities, housing is usually more expensive. In the country, it's usually less expensive. That just makes sense from a density standpoint. But it sounds like there's a lot of variation between even big cities, right? And you guys have mentioned a couple. I, I'm wondering if you you all can help explain to our viewers what do you you know when you look at a closed city versus a, an open city what are the characteristics of of the policy there right if you're a local policymaker and you're thinking my gosh do I have an open or a closed city how will they know and then how do you move from one to the other yeah i think there's a real specific signature that as i said those four cities new york city boston la and san francisco and you know san jose is part of that and you can throw san diego into the mix too with a similar signature first they just have housing starts far below the national average. So so for instance, all those cities don't even build as many, don't allow as many homes to be built per capita, say like a Detroit or a St. Louis, who's struggling with, with you know, issues of, of decline. And so because there's such demand to live in these cities, and they're especially set up to, to obstruct 
housing expansion. Uh, what happens is incomes rise in all those cities. So income growth is really strong. The economies are strong in those cities. But the people that live in those cities have to use more of those higher incomes to pay for the rent. So you you get this signature where they have both high in, they have high income before rent and moderate or low income after rent. And and one of the other distinct signatures, uh, like comparing, say, a Seattle who's sort of on the line, like they could become what I call a closed access city. But the, as as Emily said, they're building. Uh, you know they've they've been done a commendable amount of of work to try to uh, increase units, uh, especially in the city. The difference is they don't get this migration pattern. So there's just this constant outflow of households with low incomes out of these out of New York City and L.A. and these other cities, and that especially increased during during the bubble. But there's a constant outflow in those cities, and a city like Seattle doesn't tend to have that sort of outflow. Like the rent inflation has been somewhat high, but within the metro area, people can trade amenities, uh, you know, location and that sort of thing to to maintain housing in their budget. So you can compare, and Chicago is another example where they don't have, they tend to allow a little more building and there's other sort of things going on in Chicago that make it a little more complicated that they don't have this closed access signature. And like you say, you know, if you're within the Chicago metro area, there, you you can make a decision about living downtown or living out in the suburbs and, and the amenities, the price per square foot is going to be quite a bit different in, in those units. But all those units sort of can fit into a family budget uh, of the distribution of families with, that are within that city. And 20 or 30 years ago, you could have seen that in a place like New York City or San Francisco. So the scale of what's happened in the closed access cities has has been such that, you know, the prices there have doubled or tripled compared to what you would have seen when they all looked like Chicago several decades ago. New York, San Francisco, L.A., all economically vibrant cities. You know, New, you can make an argument that New York and San Francisco are kind of the two pillars. Are you getting the impression that, that it is sort of a local policy issue? Like what is what is driving scarcity in those areas, because, I mean, you know, if you've been to New York, you can see that you can build vertically. And so it isn't a, a you know, we just ran out of space problem necessarily. So what is driving that scarcity? It's a combination of the zoning rules that are on the books that limit the amount and density of housing that's allowed to be built, and also a crazy approval process in many of these places that projects have to go through. So it might look like you're allowed to build something, but you know, after two years or something of trying to get a permit, it might not no longer be a financially viable project. And and beyond zoning, there are other rules that are increasingly getting more attention, like building code aspects that uh, may add unnecessary costs to new projects. And there are rules like parking requirements and historic preservation that really limit what's allowed to be built and what's financially feasible to be built. So if these are, are, are rules, they were established by people. This isn't some sort of law of physics limitation. What, how did we get to this point, right? If, if, if we have a scenario where people are not able to live where the jobs are, where the people who can live in the areas are more financially fragile than they would be otherwise because they have to overspend on shelter, why do these rules exist? 
So they they go back to the progressive era when at that time they were based on an incorrect understanding of disease where people thought that living close to lots of other people caused illness because germ theory wasn't well I live well close understood. to my four-year-olds and I'm sick <laughs> <laughs> so let's not write that off entirely Your, uh, my asthma theory <laughs> <laughs> Arguments for things like light and air when, in reality, people living in cities can get plenty of, of light and air if they choose to go outside. But, and then over time, when people are buying into these markets with inflated prices that are based on the assumption of high rents going on forever, they have a very strong financial argument uh, not to allow more housing because it's going to cause this this asset that they bought to go down in value, which w- would be a real harm to them. And those are the folks that are going to show up to the city council meeting and make sure that their voice is being heard, right? Because they exactly. live in the community. They've got that incentive. All right. I mean, so if, if I understand correctly, in, in the case of, say, zoning or something like that, only your incumbents get a vote, right? Because they're the ones in the jurisdiction who have the the right to vote, who vote for the city council or or whatever, the person graduating from college in Madison, Wisconsin, who wants to move to San Francisco doesn't actually have representation to talk about San Francisco zoning, right? Absolutely. Or the single mom in San Francisco who doesn't have time to be going to these meetings. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really, as this goes on over time, becomes makes this a difficult problem to solve is that uh, you know, if the price of a property is a half a million dollars and if you got rid of all the zoning and all these obstructions, it would only be $150,000 for that unit. That difference between price and cost is going to be is going to be filled with something because there's the you know the the real estate owners have a sort of monopoly on location but nobody has a monopoly on being a developer so if there's a difference between the the potential the the, un, the unencumbered cost and the market value it's just going to attract developers who then end up sort of queuing at the planning department so it takes years and years for the for new products to be approved or new new buildings to be approved and so in in these places, sort of the, the uh, unions can come in and negotiate higher higher wages for the workers because what did the developers care? That it's just it's just reducing the queue. It's just making it you know taking money out of the you know making the lot less valuable and making it more costly to build. But what difference does it make? It's not changing the market value, right? Or uh, impact fees from the local government. You know, so they'll charge extra taxes and fees on new development and and have lower property taxes on existing development or like in California recently they they said you have to put uh, solar panels on new homes right now in a, in a place with a more functional market this people may have been against those solar panels cuz they would have realized it would make the cost of building higher but what does it matter in California it's just it's just bridging that gap between the cost and the value anyway. So it's just, if anything, coming out of the pocket of the landowner, but the people actually developing and building houses don't care if there's extra cost. So if we ever actually solve the problem, then we have these years of all this sort of stuff that was stuffed into that gap that's still making it expensive to build. And now you have to unwind all those costs to still bring it back down to, to what it would should cost to build a house. I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about how, what could we be doing? What what could local areas be doing? What could states be doing? Maybe what could the federal government be doing to at least mitigate some of these problems? 
at the local level, there's I'm I've been extremely pleasantly surprised by how much reform is actually going on. That's uh, rare. That, yeah. <laughs> in our business, that is rare. Yeah, just right. pleasantly surprised in any way. Yeah. <laughs> As a public choice, you know, practitioner myself, I I am very inclined to believe that nimbyism is difficult so, to So what is nimbyism? That's uh stands for not in my backyard and it's the the general feeling that people want to block any development that's either perhaps adjacent to their property or maybe even anywhere in their region. Uh, But we've seen in Minneapolis just uh, implemented a huge reform to their comprehensive plan to allow up to triplexes to be built in areas that were previously single family. Seattle, I mentioned, and Houston is another city that's known for allowing tons of sprawl outward. But uh, in 1999, they implemented a reduction in their minimum lot size requirements from 5,000 square feet down to 1,500 square feet, allowing for much denser development and for redevelopment to occur in their neighborhoods closer to downtown. And they've since expanded that uh, reform outwards. Yeah, and I would say at the national level, you know, going back to this this issue of the of the national uh, credit markets, really during the housing bubble, we were doing the best we could in this second best world, in this world where where our key economic centers have a cap on who can get into them. Uh, we were we were expanding housing in the only way that you can. So really, when you when you think about the difference between price and rent in terms of you know housing affordability, all those new homes we were building in the other cities were actually bringing rents down in places like Houston and Dallas. And part of that migration event that happened was people moving out of these the closed access cities to places that that were building housing that was making you know offering less expensive places to live that still had economic opportunity. And effectively what we've done is, it, you know, the, everybody knows about this wealth effect of, of home prices, uh, home values dropping during the crisis. They blamed it on the credit markets and they it seemed like it was just a natural rewinding of something that had happened. But actually we sucked home equity out of a bunch of neighborhoods throughout the inland part of the country that never had a bubble. And so we basically removed the the option, you know, it, America, I think, especially has a problem in, in, in the closed access, that we especially have a problem of a lack of building in the key cities, probably worse than, than some of the other countries that have a similar, you know, like Canada and UK that also have, have high home prices. I think we actually have a worse problem in the closed access cities, but we also have this interior that has a lot of economic opportunity and still has low costs. But we have to be able to fund, you know, housing in those cities for for those markets to be able to sort of take, you know, to provide that benefit to us. So we were really doing the best we could, and we were we were allowing that sort of American advantage to take place, and then we cut that off during the crisis. So the first easiest thing to do is to just allow credit markets to basically have the same standards we had. You know, pick a year. I would pick two thousand five, but you could pick two thousand nineteen ninety five. 1990, any of those years, the the standards were much looser than they are today. And we have to allow that funding to go out and, you know, to build entry-level housing in those cities to create opportunity in places until we solve this urban problem. And and in the meantime, we, you know, we would basically rebuild balance sheets of working-class Americans all across the country, basically just getting their their home values back to where they should have been all along. If, if I could play devil's advocate for a second, because I'm a, I'm a homeowner. 
I have small kids who, as I mentioned earlier, constantly make me sick. You know, it's not just the people moving in that that's fine, but there's the question of services, right? Like, you know, are we going to build enough schools or it, you know, because if I'm an incumbent, like maybe, maybe I'm just a rent seeker. Maybe I, I say, look, I have this valuable asset and I don't want the value to go down. And so I'm going to exclude people and create artificial scarcity for this asset. Okay. Then, then I probably don't deserve a lot of sympathy. But if I'm a, if I'm a parent and I say, look, I want my kids to go into a good school district. I bought into the, I bought into this neighborhood because it has a good school district. And if we dramatically increase the population, I am worried that the schools will not be as good because we can't build schools and hire teachers. I'm worried that the fire department won't be as responsive. You know, I'm worried the sewer system, et cetera, et cetera. What can we do? How can we incentivize localities, cities to mitigate those risks so that you can go to a person like devil's advocate me and say, those concerns are all valid, but here's how we address them. One issue is taxes and having a local and state tax system that is set up to fund services based on population growth. So California is probably, again, the worst actor in this respect with Prop 13 that uh, puts hard caps on how much property taxes can increase after a property is purchased. So in that case, they are, are not doing a good job of having each person each new household pay proportionally for the costs that they're imposing on local services. To your point about schools, this isn't my area of research, but I think it's it's clearly a huge problem that exclusion to schools is based on buying a house that goes into that specific school. It creates incentives for people not to want low-income children in their neighborhood, which is in my opinion, a terrible way to run a city to exclude those who are most in need of the best opportunities. Yeah, and and I don't disagree, but there is sort of a dual track system of like you need to, and I and I, you know this is not my area either, but I mean I do agree that it does seem pernicious that school like school funding tends to be based on property taxes. It's tied to a particular neighborhood and all that, so so it sets up all of those problems. And I guess you know. And I think that there there would be quite – I'd hope there would be quite a few people who are like, I want to get off this game. I want to change this game. I agree this game is bad. But I also can't unilaterally hobble my kids' education. So how do we get to a better game rather than just have have me bear all the costs? Like, it's a transitional gains trap, right? Like how do we get through that? That's absolutely a transitional gains <laughs> trap. I don't, I don't have the answers on uh, improving – school choice, but it's it's certainly uh, a policy entangled with the housing issues. Although, you know, on the topic of resiliency, I think this is sort of an interesting topic because part of, you know, what makes markets resilient is sort of having decisions on the margin, right, where everything's sort of moving in an equilibrium and we make little tiny decisions. And so one of the things that's made markets not resilient is having a lot of these situations where where you have these binary decisions to make. Where where we feel like markets got out of whack and and prices didn't reflect some marginal cost, and I I think it's sort of sort of funny and interesting how when people talk about people buying into certain school districts and that sort of thing, suddenly everyone agrees that the housing market's really efficient, right? That that the price of of houses you know on this side of the school district line versus that side is fifteen percent different because this school district has a better student body or a 
or uh, you know it more efficiently uses their their spending or whatever that so in that case we're we're actually implying that homeowners make this like third you know third tier like decision on the value of the house based on local amenities yet at the same time we believe that if you give people a little bit of of credit they'll just bid house prices up to you know whatever you know give me credit and I'll pay a million for it whatever you know and like that the that the country is full of these people just bidding up prices with no sense of of the value of the house well those are two totally different conceptions of how a market works and it's funny to me how when we're taught when we get the idea of the irrational housing market out of our head and we're talking about local issues suddenly everybody agrees that housing markets are pretty efficient and the prices reflect the local amenities pretty accurately right? <laughs> you mentioned yes yeah, so you mentioned the whole like sort of marginal choice versus binary thing i wonder is that is that a pl- and Full disclosure to the listeners, we, we had talked a little bit ahead of time, so this is not entirely new. But like, you know, I, I want you to flesh out that a little bit because I thought that was an important point about like what have we done to make housing markets more of a binary in out sort of thing, and what can we do to unwind that a little? Yeah, I think the the supply problem is is a big part of it. You know, a lot of the a lot of the ways we try to solve the the cost problem that comes from supply is by giving people access to special favors. So we have rent control on on a unit so that the person that lives there doesn't have their the rent doesn't go up along with the market or prop 13 that says okay the the little old lady that had that's lived in the house for 20 years and can't afford the property tax she gets exempted and you end up with this you know in a place like California with this housing market where the value of that house is different for every single person depending on the boxes they can check off for which uh, you know, which forms of economic rents do I get, right? And so then when the person uh, has to move out of the rent-controlled apartment, now they don't have an apartment down the street that rents for $50 a month more or less. Now they're doubling their monthly cost because suddenly they lost access to this special favor. Or the, you know, the the house with the little old lady that has low property taxes, now you have to bid the price of that house way up to to induce her to sell it because she has this property tax favor. And so all these things end up creating all these binary decisions that end up with a binary decision of, you know, 100,000 people a year having to say, okay, do we stay in New York City or do we move to Orlando or or whatever, right? So there's all these binary decisions that come at their base from uh, from the supply issue. I think it's sort of interesting to compare that to, uh, you know, say a Texas where – you know, you have high property taxes that tend to, mod- you know, bring home home values down, you know, and, and you have uh, liberal housing policies, so rents are low. And so in, in that context where both supply and credit are, you know, generally less regulated, then you don't have those binary decisions. And in a place like Texas, you didn't have a crisis because people can make those decisions on the margin, even though it seems like less safe or less regulated, you know, it actually creates a marginal playing field. Well, unfortunately, among people who make marginal decisions, I think our listeners fall into that category as well. And every minute we go on past 30 minutes, we <laughs> risk losing more folks. So uh, I think this has been a lot for one day. And I appreciate all you guys joining us. Uh, since we have solved all of the world's housing market policy problems already, I think that'll just about do it. I do want to give folks an opportunity to follow along your work. Uh, I know you all do a lot of work in housing and, and related areas. So we'll just kind of go around the table, uh, maybe, maybe starting with you, Emily, and, and let folks know where they can keep up with your work online or, uh, or what you've got out recently that, that people might be interested in. Thanks, Chad. I share my work on Twitter at EBW Hamilton. And Kevin? 
you can go buy my book, Shut Out, How Housing Shortage Caused the Great Depression and Crippled Our Economy. And if you go to my blog at idiosyncraticwisk.com, uh, there's a link there to get uh, to get the book with a discount from the publisher. And Brian? Brian R. Knight on Twitter.com, though I'll be honest, mostly it's been dad jokes recently. <laughs> so if you're looking for dad jokes, that's great. If you're looking for policy stuff, Mercatus.org. Sounds good. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. And to learn more about resiliency, you'll just have to keep following along as Brian and I continue to solve all the world's economic policy problems in future episodes for our series. Stay tuned for What's on Tap coming up in just a few minutes. Until then... Thanks to our guests for sharing their time and expertise, and thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for sticking around, and welcome back. This is What's on Tap, and I am your host, Chad Reese, joined by co-host Kate Delanoy. Today we're drinking Partly Cloudy, a New England-style IPA from Solace Brewing in Sterling, Virginia. So I will go ahead and pour that and get us started. In the meantime, why don't you let us know what's on tap at Mercatus this week, Kate? So we've got a lot of really exciting things that we've been putting out recently. First, I want to draw your attention to Bruce Yandel's latest economics situation report. So those come out every quarter on the first day of the month. So last week on March 1st, we put out the latest. He takes a look at where the economy is, some different indicators, and says that the Goldilocks economy that we were seeing that just right, maybe it looks like it hit a pothole. Oh, so, no. Bad news? <laughs> Maybe. You okay. Know, you, you gotta, when you hit the pothole, you got to see what happened to the car. Maybe you're, you're just fine. Maybe you blew a tire. <laughs> okay. So the jury's still out. <laughs> but definitely encourage people to check that out. He also goes in depth on Nebraska. And personally, my favorite part of his reports are the Yandel's reading table where he suggests a couple books. So definitely encourage folks to check those out. Then we also have a new policy brief from Brent Scorup looking at the 5G basics. So you've probably heard a lot about 5G recently. Especially if you are listeners of this podcast. We, uh, we had Brent on for a 5G episode a while back. So he is really just kind of breaking down what does this fifth generation wireless look like. Uh, and he also had an op-ed last week in the Wall Street Journal. So all of that is available on our site. Finally, I want to draw folks' attention to a new map that Patrick McLaughlin has put out. Longtime listeners know that here at Mercatus, we've been working on tracking the regulatory restrictions in states, really digging into the state code. And so Patrick has produced this heat map that shows which states have the most regulatory restrictions, which ones have the least. So we'll be adding to that as we wrap up our snapshot series and encourage everyone to go and check that out on our website. Sounds good. Well, while they are doing so, let's let them know about the beer for this episode. Uh, I'll just go ahead and get us started by noting uh, there are a lot of reasons I picked this beer. But first, I want to give a shout out to Bridget Turner, who is the lead brewer for Solace Brewing. They're just down in Sterling, Virginia, I mentioned. So they're regional, which is another good reason. But uh, it is Women's History Month. So I wanted to bring on board something that emphasized women's role in the craft brew world. I know we often associate it with bearded men, but it turns out there are other people in this industry. Uh, and Bridget is one of them putting out uh, some fine work. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what you what you think of this one. I really like it. I, I think it was last summer um, that I really figured out that New England IPAs are, are how I get into IPAs. So this one, you know, it drinks really nicely. It has a really crisp feel. Producer Dallas noted there's a little bit of a peach smell. So really like this. I'm going to give it four out of five. 
Yeah, I like it. I, I forget what my rating is. I've checked this one in on Untapped a few times, but for me, this is a, this is any time I see it on the shelf, I kind of go for it. So, partly cloudy is always a winner, a winner for me. Thanks to Saul for brewing great beer. Thanks to you, Kate, for joining us for what's on tap. Cheers. And thanks to you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>